a great joy to be able to stand here where normally Pastor Haney stands. I don't know about you, but I miss Pastor Haney already. But uh, I pray. I had a chance to have lunch with him uh, shortly before he went on his, before, even, it was before even we had talked, deacons had talked about it, and I raised with him the issue of a sabbatical, and he said, well, that sounds like a good idea, but, and then, lo and behold, a week later, the, the deacons approached him with it, and I was just thrilled. Are you thankful for a group of deacons who are sensitive to the needs of their pastor and uh, have decided that this would be a blessing for him and acted on it? That's a, I, I'm thankful to be part of a church like this. And, and I do pray for Pastor Haney regularly, and I hope you are as well. I have a friend who, uh, who's with the Lord now, but was a, a teacher in two different Presbyterian seminaries who taught in the area of homiletics, preaching. And each year, when he had a new crop of students, he would read to them a passage from... Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. And, and I'd like to just share brief, it's, it's just a paragraph. Let me share that briefly with you this morning. Again, Benjamin Franklin, who, who in his life and in his writings gave us no inclination that he was any kind of a believer. Um, so you've got to remember this is a man probably writing in an unregenerate state. But listen. Though I seldom attended any public worship, I still had an opinion of its propriety and of its utility when rightly conducted, and I regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only Presbyterian minister or meeting we had in Philadelphia. He used to visit me sometimes as a friend and admonish me to attend his administrations, and I was now and then prevailed upon to do so, once for five Sundays successively. Had he been, in my opinion, a good preacher, I perhaps might have continued. Notwithstanding the occasion I had for the Sunday leisure in my course of study. But his discourses were chiefly either polemic arguments or explications of the particular doctrines of our sect, and were all to me very dry, uninteresting, and unedifying. Since not a single more principle was inculcated or enforced, their aim seemed rather to be, make us Presbyterians than good citizens. At length, he took for his text that verse from the fourth chapter of Philippians. You know it. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, or of good report, if there be any virtue or any praise, think on these things. I'd imagine in a sermon on such a text, we could not miss having some morality. But he confined himself to five points only as meant by the apostle, being keeping holy the Sabbath day, being diligent in reading the Holy Scriptures, attending duly to public worship, partaking of the sacraments, paying due respect to God's ministers. Now these might all be good things, But as they were not the kind of things I'd expected from that text, I despaired of ever meeting with them from any other and was disgusted and attended his preaching no more. 
shame on that Presbyterian minister uh, to, to handle the Word of God like that. And, and my friend, who was a homiletics instructor, chided his students and, and, and charged them, don't you dare be a descendant of this kind of preaching. Well, one of the things my friend uh, did in his homiletics class was urge his students to study sermons. Before they ever buckled down to start preparing their own sermons, he wanted them to study other sermons. So he compiled a textbook of sermons that went all the way back to Augustine through the church fathers and through the Puritans and the Reformers and and even preachers of the modern day, and he wanted them to evaluate and and critique those sermons and and decide uh, what made them effective. Uh, But having done that, he said to them of utmost importance, even beyond studying the preaching of, of preachers that we think have been effective over the years, you must absolutely study the sermons of the Holy Spirit. The sermons of the Holy Spirit? Yes, indeed. Because the sermons that were preached in the book of Acts were the sermons of the Holy Spirit. You remember in Luke 12, uh, verses 11 and 12, Jesus had said to his apostles, when they bring you before, uh, when you stand before groups of people at that hour, Do not be afraid, because I will give you the words to speak in that hour. And so these sermons that we are talking about in the book of Acts, that that Andrew had covered in in Acts chapter 2, and that we are now covering in Acts chapter 3, even though Peter was the preacher, these are the sermons of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to look and see what it was that made them effective, made it effective, and, and understand the congregation, so to speak, the, the, the group to which he was preaching it, and understand what was going on. So let's, let's, let's make sure we've got the context in mind here. Pastor Andrew had talked to us about the, the situation. A, a man had been healed miraculously. A man that everybody knew who, who regularly stood on the steps of the portico of Solomon of Solomon, and Peter had reached down and healed him, but he emphasized to this man, I am not doing this, this is being done in the name of Jesus. And Pastor Robert emphasized that to us last week as he covered the first part of this sermon when he talked about what was being done in the name of Jesus. So, because of all the commotion, a, a crowd gathered around. And so Peter began by speaking about what this crowd had done. I want to I read briefly uh, the, the pass, parts of the passage we covered last week. He said, men, men of Israel, why are you surprised at this? Why do you stare as though by our own power of piety we had made them walk? And, and, and this miraculous thing now had happened, and a crowd was gathering, and Peter was addressing them and reminding them about how this was done in the name of Jesus, the man whom you had put to death. You killed the author of life, he said in verse 15. 
You de- verse 14, you deny the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. But then notice what God did. But God raised him from the dead, to which fact we are witnesses. And now on the name of this man who has been raised from the dead, this man is walking. And so now a crowd is gathered around. It is, as he says, it's on the portico of Solomon. And I don't know, I don't know how to properly explain it better than just to say it was a large, long set of steps that led up to a, to a porch. And there were colonnades supporting the roof of, of this porch. And so Peter would have been standing on top of this portico, and a crowd was pressing in around him, pressing, 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 and and he had to get their attention. So when we begin here at verse 17, we notice we we, we have a break in what he was saying, and and almost certainly he had to quiet the crowd. Now, now here we have the benefit of a PA system and and this building has been engineered. It's an auditorium. It has been engineered for hearing. The, the situation where he was was not set up like that. Uh, so he would have had to shout at the top of his voice to make himself heard. And in order to be heard, this crowd would have had to have quieted down. There was a lot of commotion going on. And so Peter be, be, changes, makes, makes a turn in his sermon at verse 17, and he says, and now, and, and, and in the Greek, this is, this is a common mechanism used to make a division in what's going on and, and, and to note that there's something different happening now. So Peter is calming them down. Listen, brother, now, brothers, listen. And he tells them something very important, beginning in verse 17. Now, what, what I'd like to do uh, before we dive into this passage, let, let's just read the whole thing together. Now, I'm going to be reading a translation probably different than the one you have, but that's fine. Uh, you'll be able to follow along. Verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance the same as your rulers did. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ was to suffer, he fulfilled in this way. So then, repent. Repent. And turn around that your sins might be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus the Christ who was appointed for you beforehand. Heaven had to receive him until the times when everything was to be restored. Of which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from ages past. Indeed Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you from among your brothers just like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. Any person who doesn't listen to that prophet will be cut off entirely from the people. And all the prophets, from Samuel and those who came afterwards, as many as spoke, also announced these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth will be blessed. He raised up his servant and sent him to you first to bless you, by turning each one of you from your wicked ways. Pray with me briefly. Oh Lord, it is my prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts would be found to be acceptable in your sight. 
Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So he begins by, by addressing these people who had just put to death the author of life. And he says to them, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance the same as your rulers did. Now, that word ignorance, in, in my translation, many of your translations, it, 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 our English word hits, ignorance hits us as kind of a pejorative to the ear. Um, it, it, someone who is incapable of learning. And, and, and that's not what, what Peter is, is saying here. You acted uh, knowing that what you were doing was wrong, but you had no understanding of the implications. You had no understanding of, of what exactly you were doing in putting this man to death. You were acting unknowing. Let, let me ask you as we make our way through this sermon today to, to examine your heart because Peter is going to be talking to this crowd about their sin. Now, I know I'm, I'm a guest preacher here, and it's who am I to come in and talk to you about your sin, personal things going on in your life. But this is the passage Andrew assigned to me. So we're going to talk about your sin, because Peter talked to these people about their sin. He says, you did this unknowingly, but let me ask you about your sin. Is there sin that you're harboring? Sin that, you, yeah, you're aware of it, but when you committed it, you had no understanding of what the implications of what you were doing was going to be. The excitement of the hour, the exhilaration of actually committing this sin, and then only later you realize the hurt it was going to cause the people around you. I counseled with a young couple um, many years ago now, uh, a pastor from another state where, where, the, where the woman was from called me and asked me to do some premarital counseling, even though they were going to be going back to his church to have the wedding ceremony, but he couldn't do premarital counseling because they were at the university. So would you do premarital counseling? Sure, be glad to. So premarital counseling is the most kind of fun counseling you can do. Uh, pre, in premarital counseling, couples are motivated. They, they're looking forward to their wedding, and, and, and they will jump through whatever hoops you put up for them to jump through because they want to get married, and they want to, be, and, and usually they want to genuinely be prepared before God to have an honoring marriage before him. And so we went through the process. I, gener I have a general curriculum I kind of like to go through. And, and uh, ultimately, we have to talk to them about sex. And if you're going to be a counselor, you have to be willing to talk pointedly to people about touchy things. And so I broached the subject with them about what is your uh, what kind of sexual activity have you been involved in before now have you been is there sexual immorality going on now and i looked at the guy and i asked him the question point blank and he just uh, 
unashamedly just said, well, sure. I mean, doesn't everybody? I mean, he, he, he had not grown up in church. He'd only been a believer four or five years, and he, he, he came to know the Lord through a campus ministry. But in the campus culture there, uh, promiscuous sex was no big deal. It was just, you, you, you go out on a date, and after the date, you have sex. It's just, and that was just part of his culture. And so, and so when I asked him that point blank, and he just said, sure. His fiance started to tear up and, and became emotional, and, and he looked at her in amazement. And, and, you know, why are you getting upset? And, and he looked at her and he said, well, sure, why haven't you? She was, she just burst into tears. It, like she, it was like she'd been cut with a knife. And, uh, of course, all my notes about what I wanted to do in that counseling session went out the window, and, and we had to deal with some pretty intense things. Here was a young man I, who, who, who I'm convinced genuinely did not know that, that this was sin. Every sitcom he'd ever seen on TV, every drama, every movie he'd ever watched, uh, invariably had characters who were involved in, in, a sex, in, in one sexual relationship after another outside of marriage. It was just common. He didn't know. So we had some teaching to do, and we had, uh, we had a great time. But as a result of that, I believe this couple went into their marriage better equipped to handle uh, really troubling problems better than they would have been had they not had we not walked through that. And, and I'm glad to report this guy eventually went on to seminary and served on a mission field a number of years in a wonderful way. But it's possible that I may be talking to people this morning here who have committed sin, even grievous sin, unaware of, of the consequences that that sin has produced not only in your life but in the lives of those around you. Maybe you've cheated on your taxes this year and you thought, well, it's no big deal, everybody does it, and now it's come back to bite and you've, there have been consequences for it and you've now become entangled in, in, in a situation that you never dreamed of. It could be that I'm talking to somebody here this morning who has uh, been watching porn on the internet. First, it was just a fleeting thing, and it, and, and it led one thing led to another, and now it's become a daily thing. I may even be talking to someone this morning who is involved in a in an adulterous affair that nobody else knows about, but you do. And you know that if it came to light, it would be, the problems that would result from it would be astronomical. These people had committed a heinous sin. Now the sin you committed, uh, the, the sin that these people committed were, were orders of magnitude greater than, than whatever you have committed because they had killed the Lord of glory. But I may be talking to someone who, like these people, have committed terrible sin. 
Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just the same as your rulers did. But these men should have known. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ was to suffer, he fulfilled in this way. All the prophets that have come before have told about this day. These men were the sad descendants and were carrying on the sad traditions of their forefathers of not listening to their prophets. And now the the prophet John the Baptist had come and had told them. Jesus had come and told them. And they crucified the author of life. He fulfilled all of the things that the prophets had told about in this way. God was working. Even though this was horrible, terrible sin, God was working. All through the Old Testament, we read of horrible, horrible sin. And yet, in the midst of it, God was working. God was working. And now, in the midst of this sin, God was working. I'm happy to report there's a grand solution for your sin. Verse 19. So then, repent. Turn around. For, that your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Whatever this sin is that you are harboring, can be dealt with the same way Peter told his hearers to listen to, their, to, to deal with their sin. Turn around. Repent. Do something different. You don't have to keep going this way. You can repent of your sins, embrace Christ, and as a result, your sins will be wiped out. In order that the times of refreshing may come. As a result of, for, of forsaking your sin and seeking forgiveness and turning around, you may experience the times of refreshing that Peter is talking about here. Now, ultimately, Peter is talking about uh, an eschatological, eschatological time coming of, of, uh, of future refreshment. But don't let that lead you to believe that this doesn't apply to us now. There can be times of refreshing for us from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus the Christ who was appointed beforehand. Now, having, having turned around, we need to understand that Jesus Christ had to ascend. And this, was the, this is what we've been talking about all morning. Verse 21. Heaven had to receive him until the times when everything was to be restored. Wouldn't it be great that that could be true of your life? Things could be restored. Now, here at Calvary... Uh, we have kind of an unspoken consensus amongst ourselves 
that there are just some things we're not going to fuss about. You know? Uh, you, uh, our, our church doctoral statement has a clear uh, statement about what we believe about eschatology and a premillennial outlook and so on. But you may be here this morning carrying one of R.C. Sproul's study Bibles. And the chart in the back of your Bible about the end times will look, a, will look a little bit different than the chart that's in the back of the Bible of the guy in the next row over who's carrying a Ryrie study Bible. It will just be a little different. Now, if you have a different eschatological by that I mean a, a view of, of, of how exactly the end times are going to roll out, that's fine. We are not going to fuss about it around here. But know this, Jesus had to ascend so that times of refreshing could come from him, from the presence of the Lord, so that everything would ultimately, verse 21, be restored of which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from ages past. Regardless of what your timeline looks like for the, for the end times, know this, and we all agree on this, the scriptures are absolutely clear, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is going to come back for his own. We are looking forward to that day. But until then, you can experience times of refreshing. If only you will turn around, repent, go another direction, embrace the grace that Jesus Christ extends to you. But wait, there's more. You know, the commercials, wait, wait, there's more. I'm glad to report, verse 21. Indeed, Moses said, and Peter quotes the great prophet Moses, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you from among your brothers, just like me. Again, Peter is quoting the book of Deuteronomy here. You must listen to whatever he tells you. Any person who doesn't listen to that prophet will be cut off entirely from the people. This prophet that has come and that you put to death, but he came to tell you what to do. Now, lest you get uncomfortable when I start talking to you about what as a believer you must do, let me, exp- let me explain. Let me give some context. Those of us who come from a fundamentalist kind of background, and I know many of us have, I have. Uh, I, I grew up in one of the old line fundamental churches in, in Iowa, in the GARBC. We owe a great debt to our fundamentalist forefathers who stood for truth a hundred years ago against the onslaught of liberalism in their educational institutions and in the churches across their denominations. We owe them a great debt. But as in many movements, uh, th- as 
the next generation came along and another generation came along, things kind of went off the rails. And staying pure, theologically pure, as the forefathers had, had told us we must do, it became, well, in order to be, be pure, you must do these things that I think make you pure. And, and the other pastor would say, well, you must do these things that I think that you... And so it became, fundamentalism ended up, be, in these days, became defined by rules and regulations and what music you could listen to and what clothes you could wear and so on. That is not what Moses was talking about, and that's not what the prophet came to do, to tell us. But let there be no mistake, this prophet came to tell us what to do. Remember the Great Commission? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all the nations, teaching them to do the things that I have commanded you. We are to do the things that Christ commanded us. We are to do the things that the New Testament tells us to do. We are to mortify the flesh. We are to put off the old. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We are to uh, discipline ourselves unto righteousness. All these things that we are to be doing. Moses said this prophet was going to come and tell us what to do. Now, Having said that, let me tell you that, that even though fundamental, fundamentalism along the way dug a ditch on one side of the road that many have fallen into, be aware that on our road to sanctification, there are some who have dug a ditch on the other side of the road. Uh, there are those uh, in, in some corners of evangelicalism today who are writing books and promoting a view of of how we grow and change in the Lord is sub-Orthodox. I was reading a book just recently by an author who was a, a man who obviously loved the Lord, a man who had a gift for writing. I was reading along, and I just, I found I had to get up out of my chair and go get a highlighter because this guy had just had a way of turning a phrase and just the right metaphor at the right time to make his point. And I found myself, as I, as I read this book, drawn closer to Christ. I mean, this, this man knew how to tell us about the, the heart and the love of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. It was, it was a marvelous book. Uh, but when I got to the end of it, uh, I, I, lo- I looked at the last chapter and I, and I, and I started looking for more. I, I looked at the binding of the book to see if some parts had fallen out. I kind of wondered if maybe there might have been a volume two that I didn't know about that I was supposed to buy along with this one. But, but this book just ended with Learn to love Christ more and more, and you will just grow in your sanctification. Nothing, nothing about 
disciplining ourselves to righteousness. Nothing about obeying the commands of Christ. There's nothing there. The, 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 the view is there are no commands in the Scriptures we are supposed to follow. There are, there's nothing that the Scriptures command us to do because it is all of grace. Well, folks, it is all of grace. Shame on them for stealing that good word from us. <laughs> it, it is all of grace. But the Scriptures tell us that if we are to grow in Christ, there are things we must do. And that's what Moses told us. This prophet was going to come and he was going to tell us what to do. Just as the prophets had told the nation of Israel what to do all along, all through, all through the history of the Old Testament, Samuel told Saul what to do and Saul didn't obey. Elijah confronted Ahab and told him what to do. And Ahab wouldn't do it. And all the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Micah, all these prophets stood before the people and told them what they needed to do, and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't obey. They wouldn't heed. And so as a result, as, the, as Moses said, any person who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be cut off entirely from the people. And, the, and, the nation of Israel, and that happened to the nation of Israel. They were destroyed because of their unbelief. Now, verse 23, I want you to remember, this is a quote from the Old Testament. And, and Moses was talking about what happens to sinful people in the camp, as, as, as Moses was talking there in the book of Deuteronomy. Those who committed these kinds of sin were put out of the camp. They, they were on the outside. Do, do not interpret this to mean they've lost their salvation and they are gone and they are now hopeless. That, that's not, that's not the, the point here that Peter is, the Holy Spirit is making and quoting this from the Old Testament. They're going to be put out. I guess you could liken this to what we do today in church discipline. You, or verse 24, and all the prophets, all the prophets from Samuel and those who came forward, as many as spoke, also announced these days. They're happening right now as we stand here, Peter said. And you are the descendants of those prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is possible for you today, it is possible for each of us to enjoy the blessing of God, to enjoy the times of refreshing that comes from heaven as a result of the ascension, that God could send forth this season of refreshing wherein you can repent of your sin, you can turn around, you can embrace Christ, and you can know the joy that God intends for you to know during these times of refreshing. Verse 26, God raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you, to bless you by turning each one of you from your wicked ways. I don't get to stand here very often, but this morning I want to plead with you If you have 
sin in your life that is causing anguish in your soul, that you are fearful will be found out. Please know that if you turn around, if you repent, and you go another direction, you can know the times of refreshing. But I don't, but I don't see any way out. You say, I'm, I'm, this sin has got, its tentacles have so wrapped around me, I don't know what to do. Listen, you can turn around and you can repent, call on the name of Christ, and there are people here in this church who know their Bible who would be glad to sit down with you and help you work through that problem and come to you with Christ's answers for them. You do not have to keep going the direction that you're going. Turn around. Turn around. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us the Christ who became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And thank you that we have the ability now to turn around, to go another direction because of the provisions that you have made. I pray that if there's somebody here that I've been talking to who's come to understand that there is hope and the ability to turn around is theirs, convict them, impress upon them the need to turn around, give us as a church opportunity to gather around them and help them and love them and, and walk them through this trial as they turn around. We pray in Jesus' name.